Welcome to the Psychology for Theology series. Theology is reflection on God and God's relationship to all things, but especially to human beings. Psychology is the scientific study of the thoughts, beliefs, and behaviors of those human beings. But usually these domains are siloed. Blueprint 1543 takes an integrated approach. Because in order to live full lives, solve big problems, and serve the culture, we'll need to draw on many different domains of knowledge. But as intellectual as some of this work is, we don't want these how, when, and why questions to feel disembodied and out there. We think this work matters because it actually makes a difference in people's lives, including yours. This is an eight-part series with a free downloadable workbook available in the show notes. We hope you enjoy. This project was made possible through the support of a grant from the John Templeton Foundation. The opinions expressed do not necessarily reflect the views of the John Templeton Foundation. Hi, Mark. Hi, Thanks Sarah. for doing this. Yeah, thanks really for having me. I appreciate it. So nice that we're able to do this in person because I've been doing a lot of Zoom conversations lately. So Seems so like nice. the world's been doing a lot of Zoom conversations for the last two years. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. We've gotten better at it, but it's still not the same. Exactly. Yes, yeah. and we're here joined by the birds and the goats and whatnot too, which is lovely. Thank you for having us on your land. Uh, our uh, pleasure. Would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself before we launch into some of the questions we're going to ask today? Like, what factors sort of led you into a psychology vocation? And who are you? Just do, do a little story and a little intro of yourself. Yeah, thanks. Uh, so, I, yeah, I'm a, a psychologist who grew up on a nut farm. Actually, I uh, lived about, I grew up about 25 miles from here on a hazelnut farm. A little, a little nut farm, not a like little nut an farm. insane asylum. <laughs> <laughs> a little nut farm, right. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I... At 18, I left home and I thought I'm never going to go back to farming. That was a lot of work. And so I went to college, went to graduate school, got a PhD at Vanderbilt University in clinical psychology, which was just a field I loved immediately from my first class in college. Then uh, moved back to Oregon, started an academic career at George Fox University. I went um, at some point to Wheaton College for 13 years and then came back to George Fox and uh, finished my career there. I just retired a couple years ago after 36 years as an academic. And I, of course, should mention that superimposed on the academic story is, uh, of course, everyone has a personal story. So Lisa and I met in, uh, Lisa's my wife, we met in junior high school, actually, in Forest Grove. Oh my and gosh. Got married at age 20, which is very young. That's uh, so awesome. And so um, she sort of liked my academic life and at some point decided to go back and get a PhD herself and became a sociologist. And we taught together both at Wheaton and at George Fox. And then at some point she decided to become a spiritual director and we both decided that we kind of liked the farming thing so we have this very little five acre farm now we grow lots of berries and fruit and she tends goats and makes goat milk soap and um, wow it's kind of a it's just an idyllic kind of life for people who like to be outside and like to sort of have the quiet of nature around us do you know how many hours a week you put into like (laughs) land it depends on the on the month in the winter it quiets down and we can do some writing and those sorts of things but in the spring and summer we'll often spend 
40 hours a week outside, um, which is tough when you're doing an academic job, too. It felt like a lot. So it's one of the reasons Lisa got out of academics early. And I did, too. I was like 62 when I retired. And so it gives me some years of hopefully some years of health to be able to keep doing this work that I love so much. Now, in psychology... Did you have a clinical practice where you're doing counseling, therapy, or were you more on the research side or a bit of both? Some of both. I Mostly I was a teacher and a researcher, but I did do clinical practice and I especially worked with clergy for a number of years. For about the last 15 years of my career, my emphasis was on working with clergy. Wow. I'm actually starting a small little clinical practice again. I, I've sort of really? missed it and looking forward to doing that, but very small. Oh, cool. Yeah. Well, I bet the clergy really need you right now. I feel like there's a lot of burnout more than ever. It's a hard job. It, it really is. is a hard job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of times pastors find themselves dealing with crises that like oftentimes a social worker or a psychologist professionally would be dealing with and being expected to know what to do. <laughs> but psychology and theology or ministry integration has been kind of part of your part of your whole thing for many like decades. Um, like when I pulled up your Amazon author page, there were books that were really old about this topic. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm really, really old. old so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> so no, that it makes was, sense. That's clumsy choice of words. No. Um, but yeah, and I, I actually heard you, you did an interview with uh, Lee Camp on his Tokens Show podcast right. where you told the story that you had people from the secular world and from your Christian community sort of warning you that these things couldn't coexist and you wanted to like... Prove them wrong <laughs> a little bit. So um, what makes that personally important to you, working on the integration conversation, having a better conversation? And what have you seen kind of change over the years in terms of integration? Yeah, well, a couple a couple stories around that. So um, the one I mentioned on Lee's show was so when, when I, uh, Lisa and I were married young, as I mentioned, and we decided to go off to Tennessee where I was going to do a doctoral degree in psychology. And, and we had a concerned couple from our church come and tell us that we would lose our faith if we did that because psychology w- would would undermine our faith. This was a couple we respected a, a, just an enormous amount. So we took the word seriously and, and really wrestled with it, decided to go ahead and go. And then the first day on the Vanderbilt campus, I had another graduate student sort of talking with me, hearing my story, and she listened to me and she said, what? You you're religious and you want to be a psychologist, you can't do that. So I hear I had it from both perspectives, one from a non-religious colleague and one from my community of faith, both of them saying, you can't do this. And Mm -hmm. I think it made the stubborn part of me sort of step up and say, yeah, Yeah. there's people doing this and I want to be one of them. (laughs) I'm doing it. Well, or at (laughs) least I want want to do it. So, so, So faith has always been sort of central to my life, really an important part of my identity. Mm -hmm. And uh, as I mentioned from my first class and psychology in college that was really interesting and significant part of my identity so so yeah my my professional career has been around sort of how to bring those two together and and there's a lot of people doing this work and it's it's mm-hmm. been rewarding to see it growing over the last I, I've done this almost 40 years now and it's it's mm-hmm. it's really rewarding to see how much it's grown mm-hmm. over that time yeah and then what about like the change has the conversation changed over time you mentioned let's drop Let's do the shameless plug for the book with your daughter. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. So, so the question about what's changed in integration, and yeah. I will get to the shameless plug. Cool. Um, 
so back when I started, I remember we were filling up whiteboards before we had whiteboards. So I guess they would have been really chalkboards. Yeah. We were filling up chalkboards with these, you know, fancy diagrams for how all of theology and how all of psychology fit together and these model building madness that we had. And it was interesting, but it just wasn't that relevant to sort of how people really lived. And then I think what happened in the last couple decades are our conversations became more focused. So we started looking at topics like uh, like forgiveness or like grace or gratitude. Right. And so the, the question around faith and psychology became much more, yeah, focused is probably the best mm-hmm. word. And I think relevant in that sense. So then, yeah, my daughter, Megan Anna Neff, and I wrote a book in 2020 called Embodying Integration. Mm-hmm. And we're uh, and I, I learned so much from her. She uh, She's a seminary graduate who then got a doctorate in psychology. And she took her first integration class in, in her doctoral program and felt like it just wasn't that relevant to her generation. So I... I, I I listened. I, we took a walk every week and started talking about these things. And ultimately, it became this book. I think the next shift, and the one that she's really trying to describe and asked me to co-author with her in, the, in this book, is toward integration, not so much as a topic, but as a person. That we're not training integration as noun, mm. but we're training integrators mm. as persons. So that, that, that a person is someone who embodies integration. Mm-hmm. So I think that's kind of going to be the next exciting trend in, in the field. And it's one that, that I'm really I'm really yeah. pleased to be, you know, yeah. get, bearing witness to in some yeah, ways. Yeah, yeah. That's definitely the kind of approach that we're trying to take at Blueprint and that Je- my boss, Justin Barrett, is pursuing. It's not actually very helpful. I mean, certain types of people want to talk about the abstract and want to talk about the, like, logical knots that sometimes you run into and iron them out in terms of intellectually... Uh, you know, epistemology or how we know truth or find truth. But most people just are living life and and sometimes encounter conflicts in their own life and their own life experience and from the authorities in their life and whatnot and are trying to navigate those things. So if you start from those specific questions, it, it, it teaches you sort of implicitly like how to do integration or be integrated, you know. I, I think that's probably the case. Right. I, that's really well said. I think it I think it has to move both directions. Mm-hmm. The philosophers have and the theologians have really important things to say to us, mm-hmm. but it's the lived experience where it sort of takes form. And yeah. so we have to go both directions. We have to take the deductive work from philosophy, apply it to people's lives, but yeah. we also have to start with people's lives and yeah. say, how does this impact yeah, my understanding of theology or philosophy? Yeah, taking the experience seriously. And then the person, the integrated person would have could have the tools of science to help understand their experience, but then also the tools of um, theology to sort of make meaning from it and to understand it on on that level. Absolutely. And and back to the shameless plug, this mm-hmm. this book, Embodying Integration, some people hear the story and think, well, you're not really doing theology. But actually, the book does a lot of theology. There's, there's sort of heavy theology in there because it becomes very relevant if we start from the sort of personal lived experience. Yeah. Theology matters a huge amount totally. in, in terms of how we encounter our daily lives. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you, the, you need theology for the the meaning making part yeah yeah Yeah. i I think and you probably have sensed in the work that you do that it is getting better like that there are maybe less people of faith who view psychology as a threat but there are still big a a big group of people that maybe are a little suspicious or maybe and maybe it's because 
the mental health conversation is more popular now. It's less taboo to talk about mental health problems. And you think, maybe I should see a therapist, <laughs> but maybe you're afraid that they're going to tell you something that's in conflict with your faith or whatever. So we we got some questions when I was soliciting questions for, these, for this re- resource um, about the similarities and differences between how a Christian psychologist and a no- non-Christian psychologist might do science. And, and looking for examples there. And of course, that's different if you're just, you're doing science as a, as a researcher and a, in the therapy room. But how, how, would, you, how would you speak to that question? Uh, it's a great question. And I really appreciate the way you frame it because there is a distinction between whether you're sort of doing science and you're the therapist in the room. Now, they're not completely separate. Hopefully, the therapist in the room is doing work that's based on empirical methods and empirically validated methods and so forth. So science will show up in the therapy room. Yeah, there's a bit but of a pipeline. A little, yeah, there's a pipeline, mm-hmm. but it's a little different. So if, yeah. you're, if, if, if you're asking, and I think what your, your question is, how does the Christian and, and the, the person who doesn't identify as a Christian, how might they do science differently? I, I really have sort of two answers to that, and they're going to appear to be contradictory, but but I think it's important to to answer it in both ways. The first way is um, not very much. I mean, there's some sort of ground rules to science, and and you have to follow those ground rules whether you're a Christian or not. And yeah. so uh, that's one of the things I really like about science is, is the, the work we do, uh, you follow these procedures, you submit it to a journal, it's peer-reviewed, people tell you whether you followed the rules or not, and if you have, there's a you know likelihood you're going to get your work published and it's going to make its way into the, into the limelight. But if you don't, it's not going to show up there. Right. So, so science has a sort of method that's going to be the same. Right. Now, the contradictory thing I want to say is we still bring our full selves to the science we do. So the questions that we ask might look different. As a Christian, for example, one of my most recent projects, which I had so much fun with, is looking at how Christians experience grace from a mm. scientific perspective, yeah. looking at Christians of different denominations. Um, a colleague and I just wrote a paper that's been accepted. It just actually just came out in print at how sort of the lived experience of grace, and we followed the rules of science. These would be qualitative, so these are interview studies, and we uh, evaluated these interviews. And so, as a Christian, I'm going to be interested in something maybe different than a non-Christian might be interested yeah. in. Yeah. Can I add just one other little Please. sort of anecdotal story? I, I think this whole thing about science is really fascinating to me. Because we've just lived through this pandemic, or I hope we're at the tail end of this pandemic mm-hmm. at least, and there's a lot of sort of questions around science and do you, do you get vaccinated and do you sure. trust the science or not? And that's become sort of a public political discourse is do you sure. trust science or not? So I just, I was, I'm working on a book with my wife and, and we just, finished a chapter where we're looking at isolation. And I found this fascinating study, very good study, showing that people who go to church regularly live longer. They have a lower yes. mortality rate. And social support. Social support. Correlates to longevity, right? Yeah, uh-huh. and, and pretty robust findings. Yeah. And then, on, so I, I put something on Facebook about this. And, and someone whom I know believes in sort of the science when it comes to vaccines, yeah. and, and this person I happen to know is atheist, mm. But you put a kind of snarky comment about um, 
yeah, you can have statistics statistics show anything you want. And I'm thinking it's, we're, we have this sort of interesting relationship with science where we yeah. want to accept it if it tells us what we want to believe right. and we want to reject it if it tells us something other. Right, right, But that's right. not the way science works. I mean, yeah. this is a good study with 700,000 people followed over 20 years, published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. Church yes. attendance helps promote health. It yes. helps promote longevity. and. Yes. People can say, I don't like the finding, but it's still <laughs> the finding. It's the ground rules of science, yeah. and that's what we have to sort of, you know, Wrestle embrace. With a little bit. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, exactly. Wow. I love that. There's so much there. Um, it just made my brain go in, like, a lot of different directions. But Yeah, mine to too. <laughs> Facebook on. does that, right? <laughs> yeah. I read something about, you know, they're, they're trying to see if you can form, create the kind of social support structures without the transcendent narrative right you know of the christian faith like do you need both and like the social support will go a long way in terms of giving you a sense of purpose and meaning in life which but i i read that the study said there's i forget what they're calling it there's the social meaning and then there's like a cosmic meaning like the kind of cosmic meaning that you get when you believe that god loves you right. and that your life has intrinsic significance and you kind of need both. Like the social meaning will get you um, get you pretty far, but not all the way to. Because sometimes it, it'll run out on you if uh, if the social system fails or if you're falling out with a certain group of people or whatever. That the in terms of uh, health, your the cosmic meaning will get you farther or whatever. Anyway, this is something I read recently. So well, and as, as, a, in my brain. as yeah. a person of faith, uh, that makes in, incredible sense to me, and I would I'd want to sign on to that. But I also think that's a that's a good example of a question that science needs to look at, and I don't mm -hmm. think we've looked in that kind of detail. We we do know this this large study I mentioned. People will say, well, maybe that's just because people who go to church don't smoke and drink as much. Oh yeah, and, mm -hmm. and in fact, that is part of the reason, but it's not the whole reason. Sure. It, it it is things like social support, and I suspect yeah. it is thing yeah it's like believing in a transcendent being who loves me yeah I, but i don't think we have the detail in the science to yeah. know that yet do you have any i guess uh wisdom to offer for a person who wants to go to professional counseling but maybe is fearful about having the being equipped to discern who's a good therapist or how to how to ask the right questions or uh, finding a, a christian therapist or anything like that yeah. Uh, so, well, my first thought is going to a pastor is very likely a good first step to, mm -hmm. to sort of get the pastor's wisdom about people. Um, as you say, some some pastors will meet once, some mm -hmm. three times, some more. Ten, yeah. But I think it's generally a good place to start, mm -hmm. and and because if the pastor and you, the person, feels like it's best to see someone else, the pastor might also have some suggestions for mm -hmm. folks in the area who would be good to work with. Yeah, a lot of churches have referral lists. I think there are, you know, things to think about there, too, like like how persistent is the problem? Is this something that sort of recurred throughout my life? And mm. if so, that might mean... And again, some pastors are very good at pastoral counseling. I'm not trying to disparage that at sure. all, but but it might mean that it would be time to go see someone who does this full time. That this is their this mm -hmm. this are their yeah. professional identity. Um, if it's intense, if the if the level of depression or anxiety is intense enough to keep 
keep it so, keep a person from functioning well. Right. Yeah. If and I, another factor I might look at is relational complexity. I mean, most of the things that bring bring us into counseling it has to do with relationships. But if it if it starts to feel really complex in terms of losing important relationships, or or, or uh, then it might be a good time to think about seeing a professional counselor as well. So, again, I I, I tend to place a lot of faith in pastors to help people find their way and, mm-hmm. and oftentimes that does involve a referral yeah now what do you do if you don't have a pastor though mm. that gets a little trickier mm-hmm. um, and that that becomes a question you know you can't like if you're buying a new car you just go ask your neighbors and listen to everyone who yeah. has some advice but with, with, with a private problem you don't want to do that so yeah it, a lot of times you don't it gets a little trickier uh-huh. then. Well, you might be surprised if you have some <laughs> trusted people in yeah. your life. You yeah. might know some people who are seeing a good therapist who you don't even know are in therapy. <laughs> well, and absolutely. Yeah. And and I think word of mouth referrals can be helpful. I think physicians, if you don't have a pastor and you're uh, looking for someone, I think you can go to your physician and say, yeah. who do you recommend? And, and that yeah. can be a good source. Right. Yeah. Or, you know, even if you don't go to a church... You can often contact like a church office and right. they'll have a referral list on hand. So right. that, that could be a good tool for some folks. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's any way that Christians need to think about mental illness or mental health differently than how a, a non-believing person would? Do you think we have to think of those terms in any... Do we have to be careful in any way? Or Yeah, so mental health and mental illness and how do Christians think about that? this... Uh, so there have been entire books written on mental illness and mental health. There's lots of different ways to look at this. I think so. It seems to me that that uh, uh, adaptability is a pretty good way to look at mental health and mental illness. Now, now when it comes to being a person of faith, being a Christian, I, I mean, I think that speaks to the whole notion of flourishing, being adaptable, being healthy and hopeful in life. I don't think faith is all of that. I think there's, you know, a psychological, emotional dimension that has a lot to do with that. But as we were talking earlier, I think something about the notion that some being, some God out there is in love with me Mm. makes a huge difference in terms of how we understand our place in the world and our hope in the world. Um, now, with serious depression, that gets muted. We stop thinking of God that way. We start thinking of God more as a judge or yeah. the punisher. Or, And when that starts to happen, I would still look back to that adaptability question. Is, is, is God starting to feel oppressive and depressing to mm-hmm. me? In which case, that's probably a mental health issue. Uh, it's a theological issue too, but it's mm-hmm. probably a mental health issue. It's probably mm. something that needs some attention around depression or something to that yeah. effect. Yeah, I think it's helpful for people to be okay with understanding that the, the complexity of what a human being is and like multiple levels of causation, to use a fancy word, but you know, we, we're embodied, we have a spiritual life, we have social lives. You know, all these different factors of, you know, why am I depressed? You know, yeah. who who knows? That could be a very complicated question. And they're in, in constant interplay yeah. with one another. And if I could actually walk back what I said a moment sure. ago, I think sometimes having disenchantment with God, having mm. lament toward God is actually, can be a sign of health too. Mm. I don't want to say that's always depression. Sometimes, mm-hmm. I mean, you look through the, 
the Psalms and mm. you see the psalmists are often, you know, crying out in anguish to mm -hmm. God. So I, I don't want to just sort of equate that with depression necessarily, sure. but, but if, it's a, if it's a dark cloud that just sort of always hangs over a person, sure. then I think they at least need to be open to that possibility that there's sure. some mental health issue going right. on here. Especially if it's getting in the way of your, yeah, like you said, your ability to function in your job or yeah. certain relationships or parenting or other, other things that's a good warning sign. We've dipped into it a few times, but like, what is the role of faith and church community if you are in a mental health crisis? Like, how does, how can, we talked a little bit about social support, but maybe we can get a little bit more specific about how church leadership or a church community could support someone. I, I know it's kind of hard to answer because a mental health crisis could look a lot of different ways, you know, and there's different levels of it. But Right, and every community what, is so different. Yeah. So I think my first thought to that is just being a community. We were talking a, a while mm. back about how just being in a faith community helps reduce mortality, increases lifespan, mm -hmm. and it increases health. So mm -hmm. being a community. But I think part of that is being a community that cares, being mm. in a place where you feel known and loved and cared for. Mm. I always get a little worried if it feels like the community is offering too many quick answers. Like, yeah. like if you if you feel depressed, you need to pray more. You need to try this spiritual practice. I think praying more and spiritual practices are good, but yeah. I don't think that's necessarily always the answer to the mental health problems that a person might be experiencing. So. Yeah. So that that makes me nervous when I hear about communities that are too quick to rush to rush to answers. Uh, I think the healthiest communities, from a psychological perspective, and I would even argue from a spiritual perspective, are the ones that can hold doubt and uncertainty and and pain and be places where we can bring our whole selves. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes there's a tendency. If you know, those of us who are churchgoers know this. We walk in the door. And we feel like we're supposed to sort of bring our best self, the sort of ideal self that matches yeah, yeah. everyone else we notice and see around us. Yeah. But if you found a, a, a caring, deep community over time, and this doesn't happen right away, but sure. over time, you start to move into sort of deeper ways of knowing where you start to realize that other people are struggling too, that, this, that the, the, the problems of my life are not unlike the problems other people encounter, that life is hard and, yeah. and painful and difficult and there are struggles. And as yeah. a community, we can sort of support and hold one another up in that way. Mm. I think of the, you know, the Christian virtues of faith, hope, and love. I think that's what a community offers, right? Is, is faith, not, not just what I'm supposed to believe, but the possibility that there really is someone out there who cares deeply for me mm. and a mystery there's a mystery to yeah. faith and hope that um that, that, that life is ultimately a comedy and not a tragedy that that, that mm. the ending is a good ending and not a bad ending yes and love i mean that's what a community is is, is a place to be known to know others to be loved and to love yeah, in my experience, when you're part of a community like that, that's operating at a, you know, at least semi-healthy level, and you feel loved by the people, both known and loved, because that's important, that it becomes more plausible that there's a God that loves you too, because they mediate some of that love to you and their actions. So it, it works on two levels, just being comforted by the love of the people, but also it becomes more believable that there's a God that loves you too, because they medi mediate that. Um, 
Which goes back to the earlier conversation about these, the, the sort of the experience of integration occurs inside of a person. These are right. things that we encounter in an embodied, personal way. So yeah. yes, if I, if I can embody in my embodied self, encounter a, a community that loves me, it's going to make it much easier for me to understand what it means for God to love me and totally. for me to love God. Totally. Okay, I have my last couple of questions they had to do. We, we, we dipped into it. You talked about not being too prescriptive as a church community in terms of spiritual practices. But have you are you familiar with or have you done any research about spiritual practices and sort of the, how the scientific community perceives spiritual practices or under, how they understand? Or what, what comes to mind in that realm? So I, the... the, the Framing it around science, I'm mm-hmm. going to have to say I, I don't know a lot about this. I, mm-hmm. I, I suspect there are people who have studied this. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I know there's some old studies on meditative prayer and mm-hmm. some benefits of that. Mm-hmm. I'm actually very interested in the topic, even mm-hmm. though I'm not super familiar with the science, the mm-hmm. recent science on this. Uh, my wife, Lisa Graham McMinn, and I are just finishing up a manuscript that we're really excited about. And she's a spiritual director, formerly a sociologist, as I mentioned, now a mm-hmm. spiritual director. And so she thinks and talks a lot about spiritual practices. And this book is called The Power of Slow. Well, actually, we don't know what it's called because publishers always change the title. (laughs) That's what it's called for now. And we have chapters like uh, slow to speak, slow to anger, slow to fear, slow to grasp, slow to consume, slow to isolate, slow to judge. And in each case, we're offering an invitation to a particular spiritual practice. So Mm. slow to anger, an invitation to empathy, and then sort of spiritual practices that allow us. um, To help. And and in that case, it would be the welcoming prayer, which comes out of the contemplative tradition. Um, One of the practices I've been trying for the last few months that I just have loved is an Ignatian practice called the daily examine, where at the Mm. end of the day, you sort of spend some time just walking back through the day and um, seeing God's presence, noticing places where we may have fallen short. Um, noticing yeah. moments of grace. But, but so what we do in this book, and again, it's not science as much as it's sort of the lived oh, yes. experience. You're welcome to just speak as a person or a okay. Christian. Okay. <laughs> you know? yeah. What we do in the book is we try to take sort of the Christian virtues, what, how it is we want to live to sort of slow down this fast-paced world yeah. and then match up particular disciplines that can help us live at, at that sort of slower pace that, that I think we all long to live at. So. Yeah. Also, like, Living more regionally, I don't know, like, it's because technology opens us up to, you know, a kind of a global mentality very easily because we have so much information available to us. And I think that we weren't really designed to be able to know about the suffering that's happening in the entire world. And I would imagine that especially living a, a kind of farm life reminds you to kind of keep your attention on what's in the world around you. I'm not talking about not having empathy for or, or sorrow or grieving the, the the. It's not entirely bad to know what's going on in the world, you know. But it seems like it's overwhelming a lot of people. So this is here's another shameless plug because this is the book we're writing. Essentially, <laughs> what you the question you just yeah. asked. So so I mean, there was a time where bad news would happen. Bad news has always happened in the sure. world. And a messenger would come to your village and tell you this bad thing, and people would grieve and they would express sorrow and lament. Yeah. 
And then they would have some days to adjust, to get their sympathetic nervous system calmed down and to sort of mm. get back to, to an equilibrated state. But now, I, I mean, I wear an Apple Watch that's buzzing at me multiple times a day telling me <laughs> about the worst news in the, in yes. the world that's happening. And yes. we're constantly being bombarded with the bad news. And yes, and yes so... So Lisa and I are part of a reading group that started by reading all of Wendell Berry's fiction. And, and Wendell Berry is a guy that really calls us back to these local communities mm -hmm. where we can just sort of slow things down and not be yeah. quite as globally minded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's some advantages to being globally minded, but there's also some advantages to being locally minded yeah, and, especially and if you slower. Notice, I mean, that's, especially if you notice it's kind of inhibiting your ability to function yeah. or to participate in your local community. There might be ways of moderating that, uh, filtering your access to that information or your the time you spend ruminating on that information so that you can participate in healing and doing good things, right. you know. Um, Just this week, I actually turned off notifications on my watch uh -huh. so that I don't get news feeds anymore on my watch because it just was overwhelming me. And uh, some people I know will only check their email once or twice a day because it's just too much to be constantly yeah. on call. Can you find that that's enough? Yeah, there was this other question about work. I didn't know if you had anything to say about that, about the impact of our work and our flourishing. Do you have any comments along those lines? I had a few thoughts. Okay. Um, I was driving. My my daughter lives in Portland, and I live about 25 miles away. I was driving in this week to help her finish up a storage shed that we've been building over the last few weeks. And, and the last step is painting. And for whatever reason, I just don't like painting. It's, it's nothing I've ever really enjoyed. So uh -huh. I was going in that morning, driving through traffic into my daughter's house, sort of imagining that I wasn't going to like what I was doing that day. And it, it brought me some empathy for how much of the world experiences work that way, that, mm -hmm. that there is a sense of drudgery to work. And I don't think there's any kind of magic pill that will make that go away. I think much of work is that way for, mm -hmm. for many, many people throughout the world. I think it is a great blessing whenever it happens, when vocation and occupation yeah. can go together. And that's an incredible blessing that some of us have. I've yeah. had that through my entire career. Yeah. I don't want to take much personal credit for that. I think sometimes it just happens and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, and when you have it the does, opportunities that you do. Yeah, yeah. yeah to have the opportunities yeah. to do what you love and make a living doing yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, and when that happens, we ought to just count it as God's incredible blessing in our lives yeah. and be grateful for it and and recognize that's part of of flourishing when we have those opportunities yeah uh, it feels like a lot of what mental health is is recognizing what you have control over and what you don't right and that's what you're reminding of me right like there's a lot of systems that influence what work is available to you including the kind of education you need and the kind of education you can afford or you know right now they say that there's more jobs available than there are workers what types of jobs are those? And are those right. workers the type of workers that would be fulfilled by those jobs? You know, like that's something that that mixed match isn't necessarily something we have control over. Right. And then yeah. there's the whole issue of privilege in terms of how, of what, what sort of background a person has that gives, that leads way to the education and the opportunities that people yeah. have. Um, yeah. So it's a real complex question. Um, 
but I, you know, I think sometimes we think of work as sort of unrelated to theology, but I or psychology, but I don't think it is. I think work is a, a part of our very being. I think there is a rich theology of work. I think there's a rich psychology of work. And it's good to be wrestling with that, even though in an interview like this, we can't do much justice to it. I think mm -hmm. it's a really fascinating question and an important one to continue to wrestle with. Yeah. A psychologist I interviewed recently, Aaron Smith, uh, when we were having uh, talking about these types of questions, what we kept coming back to is sort of that sacred secular divide and thinking of life in these different parts of a pie, just trying to bring the whole thing more together, which is... As a Quaker, um, we don't like the word secular, and I realize sure. it's, a, it's a common word, and sure. I think there's value to the word, but, but in, in my tradition, um, which is a Christ-centered Quaker tradition, we really want to see all of it as sacred, that all of life... Um, sort of holds together under the care and love of God. So, but I, I do think there's value to the word. Sometimes it's just practical. <laughs> yeah, it is absolutely practical. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cool. Is there anything we didn't get to that you, that came to mind when you were reading over the questions ahead of time? Or is there anything that you think that, that your, um, your psychology training has um, made salient to you that you would, you would hope that the church could embrace more fully, maybe? Uh, I could tell a, a story if we have time Stories for Stories are great. Okay. People I, probably won't remember anything that we said uh, except for the okay. story you're about to say. <laughs> so this is, a, this is a story that happened in 1999. Mm -hmm. I was teaching at Wheaton College at the time, and I was teaching a class in psychological assessment. And so to stay current, I was working at the hospital down the street doing psychological assessments. And there was a psychiatrist who would refer me to patients, and I would go into the hospital. I would do my testing, do an interview. And then the psychiatrist wanted the report back within 24 hours. So I was staying up till midnight Dang. on these nights writing reports. And it was a busy life. I was, I was, uh, I was in a busy season. And one of the things I was doing as I was write, writing these reports is I would, I would go and find paragraphs that seemed to sort of be fitting and then I from a previous report and I would paste it in and I would adapt it and make it you know customized to the particular patient I was seeing. So I was walking across the hospital parking lot in 1999 after having seen a patient, imagining being up late that night writing the report, and I had this insight that there was this paragraph that I was cutting and pasting on almost every report that I was writing. And it had to do with social isolation, that people in the busy western suburbs of Chicago we're feeling all alone, mm. utterly alone. And it occurred to me, I asked myself the question, I said, "What? where do people find connection mm. in our busy world today? And the clear answer to me was faith, in communities of faith. Mm. And, and that was the sort of moment where I said, it was an epiphany for me, really. It was whatever years left, I, however many years left I have in my career, this is what I want to do. I want to talk about and work on and think about psychology and the church and how the two can work together and how there can be a mental health benefits to the church, but there's also spiritual benefits and, and yeah. sort of bringing those two together in terms of holistic health for yeah. people. So that was the turning point for me. It's what it really gave meaning to my long career in looking cool. at psychology and faith. Does your own church, like, use you, utilize you ever? Like, do you ever have a, well, I don't know. <laughs> this, I don't know what Quaker ecclesiology is like. 
Well, so, you know, I go to a little Quaker country church, and I, um, like, I just helped tear down a pole barn, and we're rebuilding it now. And cool. so it uses, I, yeah, I, I have ways to be involved in the church. I haven't really brought my psychology into the church, uh-huh. per se, and there are probably various reasons for that, but it's a very small community, too. So, yeah. um, Well, you told us earlier before we started, you're hosting the... We're going to host an ice cream social here cream at our little social. farm, and we're going to have our homemade blackberries that we um, are our homegrown fight, blackberries. Fight loneliness. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, not not so much. I haven't really done a lot of work around psychology in my in my little faith community, but I it's cool. a place I love a lot, and it's it's a that's awesome. It's been a good home for us. Cool. Well, thanks yeah. for sharing everything you shared, Mark. It's been really yeah. lovely. Yeah. Thanks for making the trip out. Yeah.